This is Real Estate Journeys, episode 108. Go one step deeper than what people are telling you. Ask questions. Dig deeper on the numbers. Really figure out, can this work? And if it can, then can I do it? Welcome to Real Estate Journeys, here to help you build your cash-flowing real estate empire that you've been dreaming of. This is about real estate investors who have escaped the soul-crushing 9-to-5 rat race by taking action, leveraging relationships, and gaining the financial independence. It's time to stop making excuses and get the insight and knowledge you need to become a successful real estate investor. This is your host, Matthew Botzell. Yo, 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 yo. What's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Matty B, aka Matthew Baltel. Welcome back to Real Estate Journeys, the exclusive podcast for real estate investors looking to scale to 100 units and live that location-independent lifestyle. And today's guest is actually very interesting. She has a very unique strategy that she's been implementing, and she has a lot of value-add, multi-family experience, and she just has a lot of experience in general. I'd like to welcome Shri Latha to the show. Did I say that correct? Yes. Yeah. Very yes. Cool. <laughs> woo-hoo, woo-hoo. And you're from, what were you saying? You're from the, the neighboring uh, state from Sri Lanka? Yeah. The coastal state off of Sri Lanka in India. Very so, cool. called Kerala. The state is called Kerala. That's where I'm originally from. Okay. But I've been in the U.S. for more than a decade at this point. Very cool. So I live in San Jose and California. It's basically my home at this okay. point. Okay. Okay. The Silicon Valley area. So you came over to the States in 2010-ish around there? Actually, 2006. So it's been 14 years. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Crunch the numbers. Right. Very cool. And so what were you doing in India before, before you came over? Yeah, so I went through my high school, I mean, my schooling and my um, undergrad education in India. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to the U.S. to do my master's degree in uh, statistics. Okay. So that was 2006. And then I've been basically working ever since in corporate as a data scientist. Okay. So that's been my primary kind of job. And during that period of time is when I was able to save and start investing in real estate. So... When you're becoming a data scientist, has this always been like a dream, a fascination of, you know, getting into real estate or how did you go about getting into that? Yeah, I think, uh, so it's always been a fascination. Yes. Even when I was younger, I remember like my mom, when we drove in the car, my mom would like point out vacant lots and she'd talk Mm -hmm. about, I wonder how much that one costs. You know, I wonder if we can put a house in there. You know, she would always talk about it. And they had a lot of unrealized real estate dreams of their own. Uh The one thing I recognized was how much everything had appreciated 30 years from when she said those things, right? So you really have to take action early on with real estate to really see the count compounding, see the appreciation, see the benefits. So yes, it was some part of it was definitely there kind of an undercurrent since I was young. But what really tipped the scales was when in 2010, my husband got really sick. Mm. He was diagnosed with this disease called rheumatoid arthritis. It's an autoimmune disease, which actually just, uh, he couldn't walk one day. Oh, wow. So he was literally woke up, went to work one day, and by that afternoon, he couldn't walk. (laughs) And the doctor gave us the worst kind of diagnosis where she said, he's probably going to be disabled in five years. 
And yeah. so we were just struck by it. We said, we need to do something if this were really were to come true. We really worked on rehabilitating him. And, you know, uh, it, it was a disease that he was able to get, uh, get better, almost 80, 90% better in the next year or so. We really kind of did the lifestyle changes. We managed his diet. We did all kinds of things, including medicine, and brought it to a point where it's a very manageable disease at this point. And uh, that really lit a fire yeah. <laughs> because we started to take chances that we wouldn't previously take chances on. We knew very clearly that we wanted to buy a rental property before we bought our primary house because primary houses don't make any money. Um, so those things came very clear to us more so than an average couple might have gone through at that same you know, stage in life. Is he okay right now? He's fully recovered. Yeah, he's totally okay. 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 So that's <laughs> you, the best part. <laughs> you left that out. You left that out. Like, and then we bought property, and like now we just have like a bunch of units. Like so. <laughs> no, yeah. So he he really got better in the next year or so. Okay. And so by 2012, 2013, we were already like ready to go in terms of you know getting our real estate stuff going. So we got him better first, and then we got it. Got it. So so in the meantime, from when he was diagnosed to when he got better, you know, how'd you go about? educating yourself. You said you wanted to buy a investment property before you bought your primary residence. Was that traditionally multifamily? Were you thinking you wanted to do fix and flips? Did you want to go to the burr strategy? You know, something that's not from this country coming over. A lot of people that are hearing this, you know, I'm abroad as well. I'm a real estate investor and people think like, oh, you know, I can't do it. So when somebody hears a story like yours, how did you go about educating yourself and you know narrowing down the niche that you wanted to invest in? Right. So around 2013, 2012-ish, I started to basically read a lot. I got on Bigger Pockets, which was pretty small at that point. And I also read books by this guy called John T. Reed. Mm-hmm. He's a California-based investor who is pretty prolific. He has a whole bunch of like a series of books. Um, and those three kind of were the instrumental pieces and in kind of bringing my education all together. I knew I was going to do rehab. I did not know if I was going to burr or flip. I think the end goal was to, if there was enough profit to be made, I would flip and buy a bigger apartment. But if uh, the market turned or if for some reason I had to hold on to the property, then I would like burr or just buy and hold. So I like that part about apartments is that you kind of have multiple exits. You have that uh, downside risk of worst case scenario, I can just hold on to it. So going in, that gave me a lot of comfort knowing that those were possibly my exit strategies. So you started educating yourself. You started narrowing down your niche. When you, you spoke a little bit about markets, were you specifically looking in the San Jose area? Were you looking in Stockton? Were you looking down more central? Like where were you kind of like narrowing down your initial selection process? Which market? Yeah. So, I mean, I did start with San Jose, where it was, which was local to me. Mm-hmm. 2013 was actually not a bad time to buy in San Jose because it was kind of on the you know upward swing of the last few years that we've seen. So I, I drove to a triplex in San Jose and I was just looking around and I noticed that there's a lot of vacant space in the lot. And so I, you know, I kind of in my own head and, I, and because I'm a data scientist, I put everything on in Excel. And I said, what if I put another unit in here? Mm-hmm. Would the math be better if I put another unit in here? And the moment I started to do that math, I saw the progression of how the cash flow was increasing as I added more number of units. 
And that made me just completely move away from, you know, the duplex, the single Smaller. family side of things. Cause I was like, this is terrible compared to this. And I could see that and was very clear in the math that I did. Um, at that point, I made a decision to not invest in California because I was still partially, I was still buying the narrative that you cannot make money in California. And partially it was yeah. true that maybe the cash flows didn't look as good with the, with the sure. existing rents, right? And at that point, I wasn't sophisticated enough to know exactly how to calculate new market rents and how to refinance and all that cash out refinance. I wasn't very familiar with all of those nuances, I would say. Mm -hmm. So to me, I was like, I'm willing to do the work. I want to buy an apartment and I want potential upside. And so I said, I'm going to buy a state. So I actually bought in Dallas, <laughs> uh, where your, uh, your company is based out of, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I bought my first apartment in Dallas and it was 12 units. It was about $720,000. Mm -hmm. And I was able to renovate all of the units in about a year and three months and uh, put it back on the market in a year and a half. And I doubled my down payment. Very cool. How'd you go about finding that property? Did you have boots on the ground or how did you start necessarily picking Dallas and feeling more confident? Because usually it's the opposite, right? People are like, you know, invest where you live. And here you are moving halfway around the world, living in the Bay Area. And then you're like, I'm going to invest in Dallas and I'm going to do the birth strategy on a 12 units. Like, how did you go about finding that? Yeah, uh, it was mostly through brokers. So just picking mm -hmm. up the phone and calling brokers was where we started. At that point, LoopNet was still, you know, had more information than it does today. Um, so we would just pick up the phone, call people who already had listings and talk to them about what our criteria was and what we were looking for. So we did have multiple brokers bringing us deals at that point. And uh, my husband and I flew out there maybe once before and then once after we were in contract for the inspections and such. Mm -hmm. And then maybe one more time. So yes, there was travel involved. But given that we were capable of traveling halfway across the world, California to Dallas was not a big deal, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. How often were you going back and checking on your property? Um, once we actually acquired the property, it was probably once every six months or so. Mm -hmm. So not very often. Because uh, we had a really good team in place where the property manager was a great guy who had an in-house contractor. Mm -hmm. So he would manage the renovations for us. He would be turning the units quickly. And the broker was also, you know, kind of keeping an eye out for us. But overall, we had enough people on the ground and people who were operating at such a high level that we just needed to manage them really and, you know, touch the bases once in a while. For sure. And I think people don't necessarily understand when you're starting to move up the ladder in units, how big the team really is. It's not just like, I'm the sole syndicator, I'm doing this by myself. And I mean, you have a bunch of people on your team, you know, the lawyers, the accountants, right. capital raisers, property managers. So how did you go about, you said, you know, you had a really good rock star property manager. You're living, you know, half, half the country over on the West coast. How did you go about like, you know, I understand like you saw the deal, you flew out there, you got your, you know, you're picking up the phone, but once you kind of get closer, you know, how did you go about getting that relationship with the property manager? Was that through the brokers as well? Yeah. So the property manager came recommended through the broker and we did vet a couple of them. So typically what happens is once when we fly out to the property, once we're in contract, it's kind of crunch time where we're, you know, showing up for a couple of days, 
We, you know, schedule appointments back to back with a bunch of property managers. We go see other properties they manage. We ask relevant questions and we look at units they've already renovated. But pretty much it's kind of very boilerplate type of Q&A. If they can answer those questions well in terms of how much did it cost to renovate this unit? How fast are you leasing them out? What prices are you leasing them out at? What do you think my property is going to get? If you've done all your research, they're just kind of confirming what you already know. And once that happens, it's kind of straightforward. You can tell who's the, who's the more professional and who's, the, who's running a small shop, for example. What would be a uh, red flag for you when you're interviewing the property managers? I mean, other than not knowing the information, but would there be a red flag for you? Red flags are typically... If they operate, because I, I operate kind of in the C neighborhoods, I would say C properties, maybe C and B neighborhoods. So if they're operating only in the luxury market, um, then, you know, maybe not a good fit for me. And the, the second, um, I guess, red flag would be if they gave me a number that's way higher in terms of stabilized market rents that I'm seeing in the market. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they do feel very confident. Like they will tell me, yeah, I'll get you 1300 yeah. And I'm thinking, I'm not saying that anyway. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah. And then I really try to dig deeper to say, why do you think we'd get that? If they have a compelling answer, then maybe. Mm-hmm. But I still would do my, you know, do my own due diligence to make sure that if this person's kind of overshooting, I'd rather they not overshoot and they keep within a mm-hmm. more conservative number and then beat that. For sure. So you did a cash out refi on that property. Is that correct? No, no. I sold it a year and a half. Okay. 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 Yeah. And then, so you took that money and then what did you do? Did you? I moved it back to California. <laughs> okay. And then, so <laughs> now, now you're going back to California and what you started looking in the San Jose area or where were you looking about? No, I was looking in the East Bay, which is essentially Oakland, San Leandro, Berkeley. So that's mm-hmm. the area I was looking at. Oakland is highly rent controlled, so there were definitely restrictions around what we could and couldn't do. But there are still people who have strategies that uh, work in those markets. So essentially, we looked at properties which were right by the BART stations. So BART is public transportation in San Francisco. And we knew that San Francisco was getting really crowded and people were overflowing into Oakland. So that's all we knew at that point. That was 2015, 2015, early 2016. And we knew we wanted to buy as close to the BART because people can then access the BART to get to San Francisco. So that, that was very simply, that was the strategy. So we were able to double our down payment. So our original down payment was about 350-ish on that 700,000 property, simply because we were first-time investors and they made us put a large down payment on that property. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to double that. So we bought back about 700, 750 we were able to buy a much bigger apartment complex at about three million ish in the East Bay area, which in a city called San Leandro. And how many how many units was that? Fourteen units. Fourteen <laughs> units. Okay. A much smaller number of units, but uh, much higher in price. For sure. Okay. And do you still have that in your portfolio? I uh, know we sold that late last year. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So. I do want to mention, though, that the reason why we sell, a lot of people, you know, are confused by why we sell. The reason why we sell is because we want that exponential growth at the beginning of our journey. And yes, we're six years in, but it still feels like the beginning of our journey. Some part of it we hold. Once we hit about $100,000 in cash flow, free cash flow, 
then I just hold the property. I don't flip anymore. But if it's only generating a few, you know, 40, 50, whatever grant, you know, I'm more willing to sell it, but upgrade to a bigger property because this strategy can be rinsed and repeated in an exponential way. So why would I hold on to a property that's making lower cash flow when I can take the equity out and double my cash flow and my equity? So that's kind of the logic in terms of why I choose to sell versus hold. Got it. Got it. How many current units do you have in your portfolio? About 30 at this point after selling a bunch last year. Okay. So I'm sitting on some capital right now that I'm looking to deploy in this year. Mm-hmm. I know I was going to ask you the 14 unit that you bought in the Bay Area. I mean, I don't know necessarily that city compared to San Jose, but were you, were you managing that property or did you hire property managers for it? Yeah, yeah. We always had a property manager okay. because we always had jobs, right? There was mm-hmm. no way yep, yep. we could do all of that stuff. And if the whole point of real estate was to be passive, then kind of getting into the, you know, the, the weeds really defeats that purpose. So it was kind of a conscious decision to stay away from that. I think we experimented maybe two months of doing it by ourselves. And we said, no way. <laughs> I don't want to do this. Like, mm-hmm. this is too nerve wracking. What would you say was the key takeaway? You know, you're six years into this journey and you still kind of feel like you're beginning, but it's, you know, you're doing very well for yourself so far. So kudos to you on that. Yeah. So what would you say was your key takeaway from the first property that you bought in Dallas? What was the number one thing that you could take away from that property? Yeah, I think the number one thing is the solidifying of the strategy itself, knowing mm-hmm. that you can renovate, you can get to market rents and you can build equity through that and building equity for us with running, you know, while we already had jobs was more important than the cash flow that I didn't need. Right. Cause I already had a job. I wasn't going to quit my job at that point in time. So it was more important for me to see that I grew my equity by increasing my cash flow, which I didn't really need, but I grew my equity. That was the most important part. So I was able to double my money that I put into the property, which was like mind blowing to me. Yeah. In a year and a half, because all the tenants had a year lease. Every lease that expired, I was able to renovate those units. A year and a half, I was done, put the property back on the market, got double my, my cash in, and was able to then, you know, roll it into the next property. Nice. And so you said you're sitting on capital now. So where is Shri and her, her husband and her family thinking about deploying their capital now? Or where do you guys see each other going as far as real estate is concerned? Are you trying to be syndicators? Do you want to be capital raisers? Do you want to be general partners? Do you want to, where do you want to be investing in large multifamilies, class A? Where do you see the future? Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. So at this point, we are looking to deploy the capital in outside of the state. So outside of California, we're looking to do maybe a slight pivot on the traditional value add strategy, which is we're looking to acquire hotels and convert them to Mm. multifamily. This came about after a bunch of research and then COVID hit. And then it made it easier for us to kind of start seeing deals that would fit our criteria. We did go into contract on one property that is now fallen out of contract, but we already are almost in contract on another one. So we see a deal pipeline and we are vetting that strategy as we speak (laughs) today. Mm -hmm. And uh, it looks like a very viable strategy that we are probably going to definitely go after. That gives us the right combination of cash flow and equity building capabilities. One thing I realized over six years is 
California was great to us. Like we were able to start multiple lines of apartments going and building up our capital and our equity and network and all of that good stuff. But at the end of the day, California, despite doing all the work, your return on your equity is still not as high as you would get out of state. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, last year we said we need to kind of refocus back on cash flow since we're kind of getting ready to retire, so to speak. I actually have quit my job in 2018. Um, My husband still has his. So we are trying to move to a path where we can both be financially free. And part of that is to get more cash flow from the equity that is now stuck in a bunch of apartments. So we sold a bunch last year and we're looking to do this hotel to multifamily conversion where every room in a hotel gets converted to a studio apartment. Mm-hmm. And uh, we change the zoning and the land use to allow for multifamily. And we then basically at that point, it is a multifamily and you can then sell or you can hold. But we're looking to hold this time with probably somewhere between two hundred dollars to $300,000 in cash flow, somewhere between there um, is our deal criteria. So if it underwrites at somewhere between that number, we are willing to buy it. More on your investment criteria. So when you're looking to convert the hotel to apartments, is there a specific unit number that you're targeting or how does that go about? What we are seeing from our underwriting is somewhere between six, it all depends on the numbers, but about 60 to 100 gets you to the number that I'm looking for because it is a a high CapEx uh, conversion. So there's a lot of work you need to do to be able to convert a hotel to a multifamily. So no matter what my per door acquisition is, I have to put at least twenty or $30,000 on top of that to make mm-hmm. it compliant for the city to, to be a multifamily. So my exit per door needs to be wide enough for me to get enough uh, equity in it. And are you looking in C-class neighborhoods as well? Uh, yeah, mostly B or C neighborhoods, but definitely older properties like C properties that are much older that need work, probably hotels that are not making enough money or there are newer hotels in the area and they're not getting the kind of returns and the seller is willing to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, usually those are the ones that I'm looking at. And will this be your first time taking a, a hotel and repositioning it into multifamily? Correct. First time a hotel to reposition into a multifamily, but it's not new. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that when I thought, you know, I first had this idea, I was like, whoa, this sounds cool and this sounds new. But no, it's not new. <laughs> <laughs> there are banks who have underwritten it before, you know, banks who, who know that this exists and they've done this on other properties. But historically, hotels have been converted to assisted living mm-hmm. facilities a lot. That part of the business is very well vetted and people have done it many times over. So that's not new. The banks that do this are familiar with it. So uh, it's not that new. Are you partnering with anybody or trying to partner with somebody on this? Or how did you, how'd you go about gaining the confidence to tackle this, this new strategy? Yeah, the confidence has really come from us doing heavy work, renovation work the last six years. Okay. I mean, the stuff you do in California is no joke, right? We do serious foundation changes. We do like a half a million to a million in CapEx. So it's not like we've not done it or we're not familiar with it. I think for us, it's executing on a strategy that makes sense. So mm-hmm. I feel like that's where the confidence comes from. We've built teams before. We've gotten all those, all the pieces of the puzzle before. So it's not, it doesn't feel intimidating, at least to me and my husband at this point. 
we are considering syndication and partnering with investors on these deals simply because we see a pipeline of deals coming. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a one and done. If it was, then maybe we would just do one deal with the, with the capital we had and call it a day. But we are seeing a pipeline of deals similar to the ones we're looking for coming up, which makes us believe that this is a good format for bringing in investors and, you know, kind of executing on the strategy if it works on a larger scale. Mm -hmm. Now you've been in the business, you've had your sea legs under you, your experience, you got some more confidence, you're going to take hotels, you're going to reposition them, you're, you got some capital to deploy. What advice would you give to yourself six, seven years ago when you're first starting out? What would you say to that, that young lady? <laughs> um, advice, I would say go one step deeper than what people are telling you. Right. I think the narrative that there's only a few ways to make money in real estate, it was very prevalent in California. Like the myth that you can't make cash flow in California, you know, or apartments are for rich people. Uh, and, you know, all of these things that you hear, oh, you have to start with single family or duplexes and then build your way up to, to apartments. All of this stuff, you have to go one step deeper and really ask questions really, you know, uh, dig deeper on the numbers, really figure out, can this work? And if it can, then can I do it? I really encourage people to go one step deeper and ask those questions, put it on an Excel sheet, look at it. I think that that made us different from our peers, because if you're just reading bigger pockets and you think the only strategies are fix and flip for and so on, and yes, they are the fundamentals, but you gotta go one step deeper and see. For example, value add, a lot of people think value add is just renovating a unit. But one thing that we've done very successfully in California is we've taken studios and converted them to one bedrooms. Mm -hmm. So we've taken like a 450 something square foot studio which had a detached kitchen. So anytime you walk into a unit and it's old, in the old days, they used to have a kitchen that's like a separate room. Basically, that should ring some alarm bells to say, hey, maybe I can use that square footage if I just gutted the unit to make it a small junior one bedroom. So we've had a lot of success converting studios to one bedrooms, junior one bedrooms, even as small as 450 square foot in these areas which are more high density and that means you get a 300 something dollar bump up on your studio rent mm -hmm. on what you thought was the market rent so you're already buying at a lower rent you think you're finishing renovations and you're going to get one bump up but now you're finished your one bedroom you get another bump up so mm -hmm. just by doing that we've been able to add lots more value and we would never have come up with this idea if i had just you know <laughs> listen to conventional wisdom been reading books yeah right you really had to you know take one step in and meeting local investors and figuring out what works is also super valuable so always dig in a little deeper when whenever you hit a roadblock that says no you can't do it for sure i love it i love it i feel like the audience has got a lot of great value from this i want to transition to the three final closing questions first question is what is a pain point or weakness you face right now in your business yeah, I think the pain point I face is honestly like a lack of time because I think over the last six years, uh, uh, you know, we've started a family. We have two kids at this point. So the way we operated before just doesn't work anymore. So time is definitely a constraint. In terms of the business itself, 
I would say the number of deals has definitely gone down. The returns you're expecting to see are, are gone down. So which is what brings us to coming back to really needing to think out of the box again, mm-hmm. which is why, you know, the hotel to multifamily conversion looks better to us at this point in time. So, yeah, I mean, I think deal flow is one and um, just generally from a personal point of view, time is one. Second question is, what is your favorite book to regift? Favorite book to regift? Uh, it's actually Atomic Habits by James Clear. Okay. It's about building tiny, tiny habits to get your life kind of moving in the direction you want to. I've heard that's a good book. I need to check it out. Third and final question there for you is, if you were to live abroad anywhere for one year, where would it be and why? Yeah, so I do want to live in Singapore for a year. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, it's very interesting. Singapore is very close to India. Mm-hmm. They have a similar kind of culture. It's also similar to America in the sense that it's a very developed country. Yeah. And there's a lot of similarities in how infrastructure works and education works in Singapore versus India. So it's always been a dream of mine to go live in Singapore for Mm. at least a year and test it out. Maybe, you know, once we're, you know, really, truly done passive in real estate, which I don't see that as a very far off goal. But once that happens, we can kind of jet set off and find some places to live in. Have you been to Singapore before? I have, yeah. Just like a, like a two-day thing. I just went uh, to layover. Yeah, I want to I go there. You know, it's uh, like, I don't even know, a four or five-hour flight from where I am. It's always piqued my interest. I don't know if I could live there, though. I feel like it's a little too dense. Yeah, it is dense. That's true. I think that's the one thing that we are concerned about because living in America, you know, having a backyard <laughs> and going into an apartment is definitely going to be a stretch. Yeah. But like the warm weather and, you know, all of that good stuff and be close to our, our cultural roots because there's a lot of Indians also in Singapore. And some part of me wants my kids to know some of Indian culture. But growing mm. up in uh, California, they really don't. And that's partly, yeah. we can fix that. It's not the end of the world. But it would be nice to experience that, you know, uh, for a year or so. In time, in time. You'll do it. Very cool. Sure. Well, it was a pleasure having you on the show. What's the best place for people to uh, get in touch with you and find you? Yeah. Um, the best place would be my website. It is the shrilatagroup.com. So it's the, T-H-E-S-R-I-L-A-T-H-A group, G-R-O-U-P.com. I'm also on Instagram as Bay Area underscore multifamily. And you can, you know, feel free to email me at shri at the shrilatagroup.com. There's multiple places you can find me. So I look forward to, you know, hearing from you if you want to, you know, do a similar strategy or if you want to partner or if you want some education. For sure. For sure. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. We'll catch you on the next go around. Thank you guys for listening to today's episode. I hope you guys got some tremendous value there from it. But if you guys are looking to take your real estate career to the next level and looking to partner with us on your next real estate deal, please head on over to www.matthewbaltzell.com and sign up for the newsletter and you'll get our latest deal flows and our up-to-date real estate investing information, tidbits, and tips there for you. All right, guys. Catch you on the next go around. Peace. Are you a busy real estate professional who is looking to build their authority online as a featured podcast guest but lacks the time to do so? Then head on over 
to ElitePodcastBookings.com today to schedule a free consultation with the number one real estate podcast booking service and you'll receive a limited time offer of 25% off.